This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at funding, equity, and achievement in Australian schools. My guest is Barbara Preston. So at the simple level, Australia has three sectors of schooling as they are classified in government administration and data collections. So public system, which currently enrolls about 64% of students, a Catholic system, so that's Catholic systemic schools, primary and secondary, and they enroll about 20% of students, and an independent sector, which enrolls about 16%. Barbara Preston is an independent researcher based in Canberra. She's recently authored the report, Funding Equity and Achievement in Australian Schools, which documents a national symposium that was convened by Jane Kenway and Fazal Rizvi earlier this year. Barbara Preston, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. It's really great to have you on to talk about some of the issues around funding and its subsequent impact on, say, achievement and equity in Australia. So I guess to start, those who might not know too much about the Australian education system, and particularly the schools, the structure of the Australian school system. Well, it appears pretty simple, but in fact, it's very complex. So at the simple level, Australia has three sectors of schooling as they are classified in government administration and data collections. So public system, which currently enrolls about 64% of students, a Catholic system, so that's Catholic systemic schools, primary and secondary, and they enrol about 20% of students, and an independent sector which enrolls about 16%, and it's made up of some very old high-fee independent schools, equivalent to the British public schools, some of which were established in the 1830s to 1850s, and then more recently quite a few lower-fee Christian fundamentalist and other religion independent schools, including religious ones such as Jewish schools, Islamic schools, and other religious organizations, different sects, different specializations. That's quite interesting. So independent is such a wide umbrella in terms of sort of fee-paying schools of different varieties, whereas Catholic schools are sort of separate from independent, but are they also fee-paying? Oh, yes. All private schools are fee-paying. They receive, in some cases, extremely generous public funding and they have autonomy. So this contrasts very much with, uh, say, Catholic schools in other countries like England or the Netherlands or New Zealand, where they are part of the public system and can't charge fees and also sort of have regulations on their enrolments and other aspects. Right. So when we talk about private schools in Australia, we basically are talking about independent plus Catholic schools. Right. Yes. And there are Catholic schools in the independent sector. So high fee Catholic schools, a lot of them established in the 1800s. Okay. And it gets rather complicated when there's so many different types of schools in a way. And I guess, you know, I'm wondering two different things. One about, you know, choice. Do the students get to decide basically where they want to go to school? And I guess some of that has to do with if they can afford the fees, of course. But so is there just sort of the students get to decide or their families get to decide where they go to school? Yes. And it's very much been government policy, certainly since the Second World War, but all the way through since colonial times that choice 
Parental choice of education is a policy goal which is given greater or lesser priority depending on the circumstances and the nature of the government. So private schools can be established where there is an indication that they've got viability, they've got people who want to enrol their students there and they meet planning and other regulations and they'll, if they're non-profit, et cetera, they'll qualify for government funding. So they're pretty free reign to establish wherever there is a desire from families to establish a private school. And so you just mentioned the sort of main issue that we're going to dig into today about the government actually gives funding to some of these private schools. So in a sense, and I think this is what your report sort of showed, is that in a strange way, independent and Catholic schools can get created and receive funding from the government, but then basically directly compete with public schools. Oh, yes, yes, most certainly. It's a little bit different for the Catholic systemic schools because it'll be the various Catholic authorities. There are also um, Lutheran and some other systemic schools. Those systems, so their governing authorities, will make the decision about their new schools and their enrolment, their size, etc. But the competition is a really important thing because the private schools have freedoms that the public system doesn't have. Such as? Well, private schools have freedoms to enroll in terms of the number of students, whatever number of students they feel is appropriate. So when you have a situation of significant enrolment fluctuation, so a new suburb is is uh, developed and has lots of families with young children who pass through primary school and then secondary school, that creates a large overall enrolment fluctuation. Primary schools initially overcrowded, etc., and then and then underutilised resources, and then the same thing happens in secondary schools. And what you find in those suburbs is your local Catholic and other private schools will maintain their enrolments at an optimal level, while the public schools must bear the full brunt of those enrolment fluctuations because they just must accept any all-comers, so they can't exclude students on the whole, there are some situations where public school students need to go to an adjacent public school in overcrowding situations. But on the whole, the private system can do that. They can also exclude students, expel students at will if they're difficult to teach while the public system must accept them. They can select students academically bright, uh, musically or sportingly high flyers, they can select who they like with scholarships and other advantages, and the public system then loses those students. Right. So this, these fluctuations and, and the sort of poaching of students, and I would imagine teachers can have all sorts of knock-on effects and sort of create instability within the public sector, whereas, as you're saying, the private sector can you know, more or less maintain a level of stability and maybe achieve, quote unquote, excellence a little bit easier. But before we sort of dig into some of this in more detail, I just want to put this Australian experience in the global context. You know, so if it's the numbers you gave were 64% of students attend public schools and about 36% of students attend some form of private school, but between independent and Catholic. How does this sort of division compare to other countries in the world? Well, it's the largest proportion of students in unregulated private schools 
after Chile, which of course had massive privatisation under the Pinochet government. So even though the OECD has a couple of school countries with larger private sectors than Australia, those private sectors are in fact integrated into the public system and fairly well regulated, so such as England and the Netherlands. So if you look at OECD, PISA and other reports, you've just got to realise that those other countries, the private sector is in fact pretty well regulated and part of the public system. And so when you say unregulated in the Australian case, what are you sort of referring to specifically? Well, what I mentioned before in terms of enrolments is probably the most important thing. They also have a fair bit of freedom in the detail of curriculum and pedagogy and really important in this time of overall teacher shortage is that they can recruit teachers And so we're finding throughout Australia at the moment in country towns and suburbs in the city that the private schools can offer salary bonuses and other attractions to recruit teachers out of the public system so that they are fully staffed with the specialists that they need. And of course, the public schools are then depleted of those teachers. Now, a lot of these competitive impact would not be serious if the private sector wasn't as large. But because you've got a pretty large private sector, it does have a very big impact on the public system. And what's so strange in the Australian case is just sort of how much governments are funding the private sector, right? I mean, it's sort of wild to think that it's, it's on the one hand, it's an unregulated private sector, but on the other hand, they receive government funding. It just is sort of hard to keep both of those ideas in my mind at the same time. So, you know, historically speaking, how have schools in Australia been funded? And I'm particularly interested in that sort of, you know, before the 1970s, because as your report shows, something things changed dramatically in the 1970s. So historically, how had schools been funded in, in Australia? Okay, so in colonial times, all the different colonies, which are now the states, progressively established universally accessible for the compulsory years, public schooling, free and secular, from 1860s through to the 1890s. And as they did that, they ceased providing any public funding to private schools even though, you know, there continued to be a relatively large Catholic system, probably about 15 to 18% of total student population, and a, uh, those elite private independent schools equivalent to British public schools. So they continued on with no addition, no public funding. And then in the 50s, public funding progressively and incrementally came in for private schools. Initially, the elite independent schools got tax deductions for donations to school building funds. State governments started giving bursaries open to any student. And then after the Russian Sputnik satellite in 1957, there was a big pressure for modernisation and improving schooling, particularly science, technology, increasing retention to year 12. 
and the then Conservative coalition government decided initially to make second senior secondary scholarships open to any student at any school. And of course, they disproportionately went to the high fee independent schools because that's where the high income, more academically high achieving students were. And then they started providing money for science laboratories and, and libraries. Again, on a system that appeared equitable, but in fact advantaged the high fee schools because it was on a matching grant basis. So if a school could raise so many million dollars, the Commonwealth would provide a matching grant. And then around 1970, they brought in equal per capita, so per student grants to all students in private schools to gradually increase to 20% of the cost of educating a student in a public school. And that was initially to be the maximum. Same amount, whether it's a poor Catholic parish school in a disadvantaged area or a high-fee independent school. They're all just getting 20% of the cost of educating a student in an average public school. And these funds were coming from the Commonwealth, the federal government. The Commonwealth, yeah. There was also some funding from state governments and there were state government scholarships or what were called bursaries, which were often generally means tested. And then the Whitlam government comes into power and things start to change away from this equal per capita recurrent grants, as you were just explaining. What happened in the 1970s to start changing this funding system? Well, after the Conservative coalition government had been in power since around 1950s, so it had been 23 years, a social democratic Labour government was elected. And it was in time of great progressive movements around the world, 1973. It was also a time when economic growth meant that Commonwealth governments could have a lot of money to spend. And the Whitlam government had a big reformist agenda, progressive reformist agenda. So improving the situation in outer suburbs, bringing in a universal health scheme, funding for the arts, and a lot of funding for schools. But they wanted to do it on a needs basis because of the social democratic philosophy. And needs essentially the socioeconomic background of the school's clientele, which is measured in many, many different ways over the years. Uh, but that's the fundamental principle. So disadvantaged students, disadvantaged schools get higher levels of Commonwealth funding, federal funding than, say, the high-fee independent schools. But the government would still, or the Commonwealth would still fund all the different types of schools. Well, the Australian Senate at that time was dominated by conservative parties. And the bishops, Catholic bishops, even though they were responsible for mostly disadvantaged Catholic parish schools, formed an alliance with the independent sector to get the high fee schools funding restored. And so that basically set up the system that has continued till today with uh, this needs-based funding based on what is usually a supposed to be a socioeconomic background basis for students uh, at, at particular schools, 
which is always a little bit easy to fiddle and easy to game. So the system gets changed every every few years and a new change is currently being brought in. And, and of course, the systems often have processing needs, have uh, questionable uh, validity in terms of are they really measuring need. So you've got that with increasing levels of funding. So even though it started out with high-fee schools getting a relatively small amount of public funding and the poorest, most disadvantaged schools getting a larger amount but still well below what uh, public schools was receiving. Over the decades since, the uh, funding for private schools at all levels has just progressively increased. So what does it look like today then? Well, today from both public and private sources, uh, over average, public schools receive less per student than both Catholic and independent schools. So in 2020, the total average income from all sources, so that's government direct funding, but also government funding through tax deductions, etc., which really should be counted, as well as fees and donations, was for independent schools more than $24,000, for Catholic schools almost $18,000, and for public schools just $16,000, even though the public schools have the largest proportion of disadvantaged students. So so there's obviously big differences between the different types of schools, public being at the bottom. How do we start accounting for the differences here? Like when, when you actually look at the numbers and where the money's coming from, how do we understand why they're so different? I think there are a couple of really important things, and it's basically to do with the federal structure of Australian schooling and political power and influence. So the federal structure means that the Commonwealth largely funds private schools and the Commonwealth has much greater capacity for fiscal largesse. So just a not great deal of political pressure on the Commonwealth will get it to fund something. On the other side, the state's quite financially constrained. So they will be doing whatever they can not to spend too much on any sector, whether it's health or police or public schooling. And the other thing is the political power of the private sector. So the, both the Catholic and the independent sectors and the, the other smaller sectors, they have a, a singular clientele and a singular group that they're advocating for and a strong politically strong clientele. Public schools are organised and managed by the states and the state governments, of course, are responsible to all people in the state, including those who are associated with private schools. So the state governments can't do the advocacy work for public schooling that the private sectors can do for their schools. So that combination of things just leaves the public system at a disadvantage. And then, of course, those advantages that go to the private sector because of their autonomy, their lack of constraints. So does this particular funding model and the sort of political economy that you've just laid out, like what impact does that have on the students who attend the different types of schools? So what's been happening since the 1970s is that advantaged students, so students from high socioeconomic families, 
have increasingly been concentrated in private schools, both Catholic and independent, and disadvantaged students concentrated in public schools. And it has an outcome for society as a whole and uh, leadership and political power. So thinking about students in the very, so the top 12% family income range, back in the mid-70s, 64% of students in that really top family income range were in public schools. And so you felt, well, leaders of corporations and science and technology and knowledge and politics and other fields were predominantly coming out of public schools. While in 2021, only 31% of students in that top family income range, 12, top 12% attended public schools. So more than two thirds were in private schools, both independent and Catholic. And so that's where the general leaders were coming from. So we see a very clear sort of segregation along socioeconomic status. Do we see other sort of factors that are you know, that we can see segregation like religion or, you know, I also think about the Aboriginal population. Do we have data on where these different groups are sending children to school? For the Aboriginal population, it's fairly mixed. In the remote communities, there are quite a few, both independent and Catholic, small indigenous schools, some of them quite locally controlled. But in the, the country towns with large, very disadvantaged indigenous populations in those towns, the indigenous students overwhelmingly attend the local public schools and say not the local Catholic school. But other areas of social segregation, say by religion, say Jewish students, which is and other and Islamic students are important in this time of conflict in Gaza, etc. But uh, of all Jewish students, more than 60% attend independent schools, mostly exclusively or largely Jewish schools, schools classified as Jewish schools. And then of high SES secondary students, uh, 80% of Jewish students attend Jewish schools. And so therefore are not mixing with the general community. And similarly, Catholic students the higher SES students, almost 65% of high SES Catholic students attend Catholic schools. And for Islamic secondary students, uh, high SES, almost 40% attend independent Islamic schools. So you are getting that social segregation, which has really important implications for social coherence. Absolutely. Social coherence, social cohesion. I can see how segregating students along different schools and then sort of how it intersects with the socioeconomic divisions and how that sort of exacerbates some of these differences in segregation is really important. What do we know about student achievement when it comes to segregating students into all these different types of schools based on their religion, based on their class, based on you know their sort of Aboriginal heritage in, in certain locations? Do we know anything about the sort of student performance? Well, certainly student performance in schools that are predominantly disadvantaged students. So if the peer cohort is very disadvantaged and not achieving well enough in academically, well, a student, a particular student will do worse academically in such a school than in a, a more comprehensive school. And also there's now some evidence 
again, fairly mixed, but that uh, in very academically advantaged or academically selective schools, students don't do as well as they would in, uh, re- in equivalently well-resourced comprehensive schools. So, okay, so there's issues around student performance. There's issues around social cohesion because of this particular funding model that we've now, that we've now articulated. What about impacts on the teaching force? Um, I think I mentioned before the way in which the private sector is free to recruit school teachers as they wish and provide incentives. And also, overwhelmingly, recent graduates are employed in public schools. And so public schools bear the brunt of that, costs of that initial induction. So even if somebody is developing into a really effective, brilliant teacher, it still costs money to give them a reduced teaching load for their mentors and supervisors and the other costs that schools have in uh, recruiting and developing beginning teachers. And then once they've achieved a standard of proficiency and they're becoming very effective teachers, very often they are then recruited into the private sector. And one of the things that I think needs to be done is the Commonwealth should be covering those costs for the uh, induction and development of early career teachers, even if they're in the private sector. But at the moment, they're overwhelmingly in the public sector. It's quite amazing. So the public sector is basically the ones preparing all of these teachers who then get poached. The good ones then get poached by these other sectors who had to pay, who had no costs associated with getting these teachers to a higher quality, which then further sort of disadvantages the types of students who go to these different schools? I mean, certainly quite a few Catholic schools and independent schools will recruit high-achieving student teachers as beginning teachers, but in terms of the overall numbers of recent graduates, overwhelmingly and disproportionately they go into the public system. What's so fascinating is that, you know, the picture you're painting here is almost of continuity in many ways, from that long history that you went, that you sort of, you know, from colonial times, there was a, you know, this slight change maybe in the 1970s under a social democratic government. But really, for whatever reason, the powers that be has maintained a level of inequality across the different types of schools in Australia, even to this day. Yes. And I think that it's hard to say, but I think the opportunity would have been there in the 1970s to do it differently, to actually bring in at least an integration model, as in, you know, it was occurring had occurred in the United Kingdom, 1944, I think, or certainly England, and in the Netherlands a few decades before, and was being considered and then was implemented a few years later in New Zealand, of integrating the Catholic schools and any other schools that accepted integration into the public system, and then constraining them from all of these competitive relationships that have been so damaging to public education in Australia. You know, looking back at what could have been is with 2020 hindsight is one thing. What would you say can be done to try and make the system a bit more fair today? Given the politics today, what would you recommend? Well, the first thing is to increase public funding to what is the broadly agreed level of funding for public schools so that they at least get their agreed share of uh, uh, resources from the Commonwealth Government. From the Commonwealth to recognise 
vertical fiscal imbalance and the difficulties the states have and increase their share of funding, but also for the Commonwealth, as I said, to fund things like the initial induction and preparation of early career teachers, just to fund that across the board. Commonwealth also to provide special support for schools that accept students excluded from other schools. Again, there might be, that could be across the sectors, but particularly for the public sector and also to provide funding for for schools that bear the detrimental impact of overall enrolment fluctuations, just to make sure there's full funding there. Because I don't think with the political power of the private sectors, there'd be possibilities for greater restraint and regulation of the private sectors in terms of enrolments or teacher recruitment, etc. So the intervention's got to be happening to support the public sector. So in a way, it's to to not be sector blind, to actually recognize that there's differences. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, Barbara Preston, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and just for such a nice sort of in-depth study on Australian schools to try and understand what I keep calling the political economy here, because that's really what I think you have done. So thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. That's been a pleasure. Thanks, Will. Barbara Preston is an independent researcher. Her new report is Funding Equity and Achievement in Australian Schools. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Freshhead are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Freshhead, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Freshhead's team includes Fatih Oktis, Obafemi Ngunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Freshhead was created by Digital Primate. Freshhead is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shaktev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Freshhead by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.